most played video game on my iPad is called SimCity Build It. A key object to the game is to grow your population. And I've slowly built my make-believe metropolis into a home for more than 1.2 million people. I mean Sims. They live in pixeled homes like this one. There are different ways to grow the population. But I had to start with basics. Sims just won't live in a city without core services like electricity, running water, firefighters, or police. Sims also want to live near parks, schools, and transportation hubs. Next comes community development, building a culture to connect residents and create a city identity. Options like constructing beach or mountainside attractions, tourist landmarks, music amphitheaters, and even sports venues can grow your sim population in bunches. I love sports, so my city has a hockey arena, plus stadiums for beach volleyball, soccer, football, and baseball. When the coronavirus stopped all the real games, it was comforting to play this video game and hear the sim crowds inside my stadiums roar. Here in the real world, you can go to just about every kind of athletic event there is in Metro Phoenix. In fact, our city makes my sim sports town look like a backwater. We have 19 venues spread across the Valley of the Sun and they're a key component of leisure and hospitality, a huge part of Arizona's economy. Even though games have resumed, the pandemic means it's not safe for most tourists, local fans, or me to fill the seats. From KJZZ Original Productions, I'm Matthew Casey, and this is Empty Seats, a podcast about the pandemic versus a sports capital. Metro Phoenix was in the middle of hosting its exclusive yearly sports bonanza when COVID-19 put a sudden stop to all games and competitions. Arizonans lost their jobs, canceled events left local businesses teetering on the edge, and fans were exiled from our venues. How long will the seats stay empty? Could legalized sports betting help the state bounce back? Chapter 1 explores how we grew our own yearly big money events that are part of an industry worth tens of billions of dollars when it crashed. The Fiesta Bowl and Cactus League are huge draws for out-of-towners. So is the Avondale Racetrack that has been carved into one of NASCAR's crown jewels. And our golf tournament, started nearly a century ago to make Phoenix a tourist destination, offers guests a raucous experience they just can't get anywhere else. In the 1930s, the Phoenix Chamber of Commerce grew more active as a tourism bureau. It needed a special events committee to work on breaking new ground, and five young executives were chosen. The chamber soon proposed that the group grow their membership, and the Thunderbirds were born. Bob Goldwater Sr. was an early member, and he took on the task to revive the Phoenix Open Golf Tournament, which became the first of four events that have helped make the Valley a destination for sports fans. Thunderbirds Charities is still the public face of the event that routinely draws hundreds of thousands of people. It's a hot Saturday night at Top Golf in Scottsdale. I'm taking turns hitting balls with Mark Stewart, John Washington, and John's wife. The men hadn't seen each other for years. About a decade ago, they sued the city for spending millions of taxpayer dollars to renovate TPC Scottsdale. Its golf courses, located north of here, are where the Phoenix Open has been played since the 1980s. 
There's no reason for private businesses to be ripping off the public. There's no reason for the public to be engaged in private business. Mark Stewart's fight with Scottsdale is over the city's relationship with the Professional Golfers Association of America, or PGA, which controls TPC Scottsdale through a city lease. The PGA Tour is some of the wealthiest individuals in the United States. Court documents filed by the city say paying for improvements was to protect against a real chance that the PGA could move the Phoenix Open away from TPC Scottsdale. If that were to happen, staff told the city council, the cost of lost TV exposure and course revenue would be even more than the renovations. Mark does not agree with the city's math. And I hope the lease will be redone and it'll be done so that the city gets paid as the owner. Mark calls the case a public interest lawsuit. Washington dropped out after they lost in Maricopa County Superior Court. Mark appealed, and he hopes for a different ruling next year. Uh, how much have I spent on this? About 300000 Mark spent this money to take on the better-financed city of Scottsdale, which has the powerful PGA running its golf course, where there's a yearly fan-favorite tournament that's helped make Metro Phoenix a sports destination that most athletic aficionados can't visit because of the pandemic. If you give up, you're, you're just giving up to the bad guys and you're making society a worse place. Deals that give public money to sports venues are common in the Valley. They cause legal fights like Mark's, controversy, and heated debate. The public questions cash and incentives for wealthy team owners. Leaders back them to protect and add to our big league attractions. Well, we're glad that you uh, came out to take a look at one of the most iconic properties, uh, I think, in uh, the entire state of Arizona. That's the Buckhorn Baths. I'm in Mesa at an old motel where hot springs come out of a fissure hundreds of feet below ground. The president of the Mesa Preservation Foundation, Vic Linoff, is my masked tour guide. But even more, the buckhorn uh, often is considered to be uh, a major player in the start of the Cactus League. The Cactus League is the official name for spring training baseball in Arizona. In 2018, the roughly month-long valley-wide event drew 1.7 million fans. But in the 1940s, only one major league franchise used Arizona to get ready for the season. Horace Stoneham, who owned the New York Giants, had a home out in Paradise Valley. And he was good friends with Bill Vick, who owned the Cleveland Indians and trained in Tucson. The two were talking, Vic explained, and Horace confided that he didn't want to leave Arizona during springtime. Bill suggested he bring the Giants here, and their teams could play each other. Horace knew of the Buckhorn Baths, having used them himself. And it was more than baths, it was really a spa, you got rubdowns, all of that sort of thing. The Buckhorn became the center of the Giants' spring training operation for years. After the property closed, the Mesa Preservation Foundation went through it and found dozens of boxes filled with souvenirs given to the Sliger family who owned the Buckhorn. First time you discover it, you go, wow, look at this. You got a Willie Mays ball signed and you know, all these other baseball players. The Buckhorn baths drew Hollywood types too. There are even unconfirmed stories that Elvis Presley visited while making a movie in Arizona. And that President John F. Kennedy may have used the hot spring water to help heal from injuries suffered during World War II. Well, it's the baths that brought the baseball players in because, you know, it's at the beginning of the season, they're a bit out of shape. The property is big. Vic explained that it once had a restaurant, a beauty shop, a Greyhound bus stop, and even a post office. Should we go see the baths? Absolutely. Let's go. 
Hot spring water no longer flows when Vic turns the handle to one of the faucets. But the Giants, now of San Francisco, are still in the Cactus League. Today they play in Scottsdale. Here are my seats, right here. Is this close enough for you? Oh yeah, <laughs> wow. The grounds crew work on the field as Jim Bruner shows me where he sits, right behind the visitor's dugout in Scottsdale Stadium. He's had Cactus League season tickets since the 1970s. There's no way you're going to get me out of Arizona during the month of March. <laughs> this year got cut short. The pandemic sliced nearly two weeks off the schedule. I couldn't believe it. You know, how do you cancel Major League Baseball? How oh, you can't spring training? Yes. You know, that's a part of the DNA of this community. About 30 years ago, the community could have lost this part of its genetic code. Jim is one of the leaders who worked to keep it. Spring training was designed to bring people into the community to fill up the resorts and the hotels and so forth. It was not designed as a moneymaker per se. Jim served on the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors in the late 80s and early 90s. He, another supervisor, and Senator John McCain were called by a Giants co-owner to meet with the baseball commissioner at the Scottsdale Plaza Resort. And the theme of the meeting that we had was very cordial but very direct. The commissioner told them that teams liked training in Arizona, but the facilities were in terrible shape. He also said that the baseball owners did not have money for ballpark renovations. If Cactus League teams were to stay, private investors or local government would have to pay to keep them here. Well, that was kind of a wake-up call, if, if you will. The Arizona legislature heard it too. Jim said a bill was passed that gave county officials power to charge a rental car tax. The money raised was for fixing or building Cactus League parks. Around the same time, a second problem surfaced. The Seattle Mariners got forced out of Tempe Diablo Stadium, and the San Diego Padres wanted to leave Yuma. Both general managers sent Jim letters saying if their teams couldn't train here, they'd seek other options. Other options was a code word for moving to Florida. Florida is spring training's other home, and if the Mariners and Padres moved there, Arizona wouldn't have enough teams left to keep the Cactus League going. Peoria's mayor put forward a new idea to avoid this. Why not build a ballpark to house them both? I will admit I have some concern whether Peoria was big enough and actually strong enough to do it. Rental car tax money could only be used to pay for most of a new ballpark, so Peoria had to come up with the rest. The idea of a shared facility had not yet been tried here or in Florida, but the Peoria Sports Complex was built, and the Mariners and Padres are still there. Jim credits former Peoria mayor Ken Forgey for helping save the Cactus League. Hey Matt, I, I don't think in our wildest dreams we would have thought when we started this, you know, some years ago we'd have half of all Major League teams do the spring training in Arizona. Our goal was just to, number one, stabilize and save the Cactus League. The size of the Cactus League has more than doubled since the baseball commissioner warned Jim that Metro Phoenix could lose spring training. Much of the growth came from three more two-team ballparks that went up in West Valley cities during the 2000s. They were paid for differently, which I'll explain more in another chapter. Scottsdale Stadium is the only spring training venue located downtown. It gets enveloped in a festive atmosphere that Jim loves. Every year he looks forward to seeing friends he's made from places like Austin and San Francisco. And people from out of state, they plan their vacations to come to Scottsdale or any of the cities in the Cactus League uh, during spring break, bring their kids here. Uh, life just doesn't get any better. 
Arizona's first survey point is deep in the Southwest Valley on top of Monument Hill. Look north from there and you'll see where the Gila and Salt Rivers meet. Then look west and you'll see the sprawling Phoenix Raceway, which first opened in the 1960s. Steve McQueen won a race there in 1970. Today the track is owned by NASCAR, which chose it to host Championship Weekend in November, the next local sports mega event. Mike McComb is a retired Tempe firefighter. He lived at the track when its future was in doubt. Well, we can't shake hands, so I'll just give you the, yeah, right. give you the bell, Matt. I'll, uh, I'll follow you guys. I think only the service elevator is working right now. Okay. On the elevator, NASCAR's Rodney Scarce said Mike and I would talk in a suite that holds hundreds, unlike the private corporate ones occupied by the highest rollers. Curves, Dos Equis curves. So it's an all-you-can-eat drink, uh, weekend-long suite. So it's huge. It's pretty nice. Very cool. Yeah. Rodney leads us to a long, air-conditioned room with seats flanked by wet bars and buffet tables. Through the floor-to-ceiling glass sprawls the entire racetrack, which Mike hasn't seen in almost 20 years. Here, Rodney would tell us that Phoenix Raceway now ranks with Daytona International Speedway as a crown jewel of NASCAR. Right here you have a Mike's Hard Lemonade stand in the middle, right mm -hmm. below the scoring tower. Um, over here is the uh, Miller Lite Beer Garden. And These are parts there, of the infield designed to put today's race fans on top of the action. That's the port cool chill zone. And then oh, okay. right here in the front, smack dab in the center, is Gatorade Victory Lane. Corporate sponsorship covering nearly every visible inch of a sports venue wasn't a thing in the 1980s when Mike became the track's facilities coordinator. This was four owners ago, and race fans watched the action from wooden grandstands. So you'd always have wooden planks or seats breaking, so you're running up there fixing stuff pulling snakes out of turn four or something like that. Pulling snakes so, out of turn four? Oh, the rattlesnakes are out here all the time. Turn four was notorious for this, Mike says, especially in the springtime when the desert started to warm up. And uh, you just have to go through a snake pull and pull them out, take them out of the desert and, and drop them off. But. Word of mouth about Mike's handyman business had landed him a tryout to replace a retiring track supervisor. Then he was asked to live on the property and take care of it. They gave me, it was just a trailer, it was a double wide trailer in the parking lot, literally in the gravel parking lot, and they gave me a little truck to drive. The place was isolated. People shot their guns in the river bottom, and a bullet once went through the double wide at eye level. But the job put Mike on a path to later help plan and run Tempe's biggest events, like Super Bowl 30. It's also how he met his wife. She was a ticket manager and the daughter of a Hall of Fame driver. On his 30th birthday, she teased that he'd grown too old to ask her out. Mike got the hint. They fell in love and got married. My son was conceived in one of the suites. I'm not sure which one, but he was. <laughs> the building Mike mentioned no longer exists. It was torn down and replaced by the one where we sat talking. Mike took out some old pictures I asked him to bring and remembered a visit to Pit Row with his son. It's like him and Kenny Schrader just hanging out, you know what I mean? There's him and Mario. As in Mario Andretti. Ricky Rudd, Bubba loved Ricky Rudd, my son. And Ricky, you know, was really cool to him, gave him some goggles. Just, just, but I'm just saying, these guys were really incredible people. And uh, he, uh, this is Kyle Petty right there. Kyle would let my son sit on his lap while he was timing the other cars, trying to get their lap times. Kyle Petty is the son of Richard Petty, NASCAR royalty known simply as the King. But when Mike first started at the raceway, much of what he had to maintain was still original. The track itself was usable, but keeping it that way required a yearly process of bending coffee cans into spouts and filling all of the cracks. 
and then somebody would come along and squeegee it completely flat because you couldn't have any ridges. Not doing this job right would put race car drivers in danger. So it was very tedious, back-breaking, hot-ass work because it was summertime. A new owner took over in 1985 and agreed to resurface the track as part of the deal. Well, my name is Buddy Job. Uh, my legal name is Emmett Sales Job Jr. Buddy Job had an East Valley farming operation that stretched from Chandler almost to Florence. A search for real estate investments led him to the West Valley, and he bought the property because testing deals with car makers like Porsche meant he'd make money. But the Indy car race the track hosted had been taken away. The driving surface was the reason given. The track was grown up. I mean, you could barely see it in tumbleweeds. Buddy had the track resurfaced, which won back the IndyCar race. Then Buddy started going to NASCAR races, pressing the flesh and talking up his own track. He got a sit-down with Bill France Jr., the head of NASCAR. Buddy's pitch was two-pronged. Coming to Metro Phoenix would expand NASCAR's presence out west, and stock cars could race in Arizona in the late fall and early spring, right when the weather was bad in NASCAR Heartland, the southeast. So he rolled his eyes a little bit, and I said, well... The NASCAR executive, known to Buddy as direct and to the point, told him that NASCAR already had a full schedule, and the chances for coming to Metro Phoenix were next to none. I said, well, Mr. France, I said, well, what, what do you think we got uh, one chance in, a, in 10 of getting a, uh, getting a NASCAR cup race? That's, that's a big one. He says, one in 10, he, he kind of laughed and he shook his head, no, no, no. And I said, well, how about... How about one in a hundred? No, 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 no chance. Buddy kept raising the odds until the executive finally smiled and agreed the Phoenix track had a one in a million chance to host a NASCAR cup race someday. So I stood up and I shook his hand. I says, really good talking to you, Mr. France. I says, we've still got a chance. <laughs> it became a running joke every time Buddy saw Bill France Jr., who did end up needing a new venue to keep NASCAR's presence in the West. Buddy was summoned to headquarters in Daytona for a meeting with top NASCAR executives. So we sit there and talked and talked and talked, and they had a big overhead map, and they were looking at it, and they were asking me questions. And Lunchtime came, and the meeting broke. Confused, Buddy went to a cafe to eat with Les Richter, a former star pro football player who had a second career in sports as a NASCAR vice president. I'm on the edge of my chair, kind of rocking back and forth, kind of trying to figure out what was going on. Buddy asked Les, better known as Coach, what had just happened. Coach said the meeting was to come up with a press release saying that Phoenix would host a NASCAR race. Buddy lay back in the booth and took a deep breath. He started laughing. He says, well, didn't you have it figured out by now? And I says, well, I'm a little slow. Buddy had gotten used to signing long, detailed contracts with the IndyCar Racing Authority. But that's not what happened with NASCAR. It was totally handshake. My, my word is my bond. NASCAR's official announcement came months after lightning started a fire that burned most of the Phoenix racetrack's grandstand. Buddy built a new one that could hold more fans. About a month before the 1988 NASCAR race, work was finished on a three-story luxury suite building, which also had a new apartment for Mike McComb. Then I thought, okay, I'm here for the long term. You know, this place is going to take off. 
NASCAR doubled the number of yearly races in Phoenix in 2005. By then, Buddy had sold the track to International Speedway Corporation, which was recently bought by NASCAR. From what it was to what it is now, I couldn't have imagined it would be this big. Big enough to host NASCAR's championship weekend. Race officials recently announced that they will have fans in November, just not as many. Mike's not sure what that will be like, given that some fans normally start showing up weeks before a race. They got music, they got festivities, they've got a grocery store. It's its, its own little city, and its it's an experience like no other. In 1970, Arizona State University played football in the Western Athletic Conference. The Sun Devils didn't lose a single game that year, but they weren't invited to a bowl game. Snubs like this were one of the driving forces that led nine Arizonans to start their own bowl. It kicked off in 1971, and ASU won the game. Carl Eller, who died last year, was one of the founders. Uh, it took a lot of effort from everybody's part, a lot of politics, a lot of schmoozing people and trying to get them into the thing. And finally, we ended up uh, getting the bowl game, and then we had a contest to name the bowl, and it ended up being the Fiesta Bowl. In the 1970s, the game usually featured an Arizona school and was played on or around Christmas Day. 1981 marked the move to a New Year's game, which was home to iconic bowls like the Rose, Orange, Cotton, and Sugar. Bill Shover, another Fiesta Bowl founder, remembered that the decision to turn into a big-time bowl game came down to one vote. It was a heck of a risk because we were still out pleading with people to come because our money wasn't large, didn't have a big network contract. He traveled all over the country to network with the top college football programs. We, we went to games when we didn't have to be there. I sat in snowstorms at Notre Dame. Had no chance to get Notre Dame, but we knew someday we'd get them. Someday was 1989. The Irish won the second college football national championship game played locally. A few years earlier, the Fiesta had invented a new revenue source and became the first college postseason bowl to add a corporate sponsor to its name. A huge TV audience watched the Sunkissed Fiesta Bowl in 1987, when organizers put together a title game matchup that other bowls could not. Early on, uh, our independence really provided us with a lot of flexibility. Patrick Barkley is the Fiesta Bowl's current chairman. The focus has always been our, on hospitality. We've really made that our hallmark. Meaning coaches and teams playing in the game get a big welcome. Mike Neely is executive director of the Fiesta Bowl. From the day they landed, we met them uh, with a mariachi band and welcomed them to Arizona as, as a community. The red carpet treatment continues as bowl committee members embed with the teams, ride on their bus, and stay in the same resort. Patrick started as a volunteer in 1998, which was the first year of the Bowl Championship Series, an exclusive format that the Fiesta Bowl became part of by eclipsing the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. And to be in that rotation where you would host a national championship game uh, every, every fourth year was a huge, huge kudo for us. The 2003 title game hosted by the Fiesta Bowl was the last national championship played in Sun Devil Stadium. The bowl moved west to Glendale after what is now State Farm Stadium opened in 2006, just in time for the Fiesta to hold another college championship. Mike described the crosstown move as emotional, but likely necessary to maintain elite bowl status. You need to generate elite 
revenue streams, and, and the new stadium allowed us to do that. The Fiesta Bowl could have lost the chance to host championship games because of a political campaign finance scandal that led to a million-dollar fine and a 2011 prison sentence for the Bowl's former chief executive. Still, when the college format changed yet again to a four-team playoff, the Fiesta was among an expanded group of Bowls that take turns hosting semifinal and title games. Mike started work for the Fiesta Bowl right before this change. And we are at the top pinnacle of the college football game. And, and those national championship games or those high profile football games and, the, and where Fiesta Bowl fit into, that was a big draw. But yeah, that television audience saw in the middle of winter for many people, this, this sunny, warm destination, number one. And then you had all these people that were following their teams that maybe came to Arizona for their first time. A major college football bowl game, a racetrack, spring training baseball, and a golf tournament all helped make Metro Phoenix a haven for sports fans. In Chapter 2, I'll explain how the Valley became home to pro franchises from all the major sports, and how local leaders built two capitals for teams to play in, before COVID-19 emptied the seats and shut down the sports industry. For KJZZ Original Productions, I'm Matthew Casey.